Boards with Hooley Smith. Half-centered one that went wide, and Chapman is lying on the ice with Hooley Smith as their skates were caught. They're up now. Charlie Conacher shoots the puck back to his own net. The car, car of the American. There was a time when Brooklyn was the center of the world. There was a, a lively community um, of all sorts of people. Uh, there were theaters, uh, there were trolleys, uh, and there was professional sports. We even had the Brooklyn Dodgers. Then, as if by divine right, we became the Brooklyn Americans, and they became us. And I uh, used to go to any American game. Paid 75 cents to sit in the end balcony. <laughs> stolen from Hamilton, Ontario to fill the new Madison Square Garden and birthed with a bootlegger's dough, they were fated to be perennial also-rans. It all led to uh, the Hamilton Tigers becoming the New York Americans. And then the fantasy met the facts, and the facts were joyless and bitter. Just like that, the Amherst were gone. You could argue that this different vision of Brooklyn not as the center of the world begins when the Americans um, are deprived the opportunity to play. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, friends. How are you doing? I appreciate you uh, giving us a spin on your little podcast listening device, whatever that might be, in the car, on the go, while you're running in the bike, whatever you're doing, uh, we thank you for coming to our little show. We call it Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week, if you can believe it, into what used to be in professional sports. Uh, my name's Tim, Tim Hanlon, uh, battling a cold this week, but uh, we persevere. We, uh, we press on, as we say, into our uh, indefatigable journey. Uh, into uh, Forgotten Sports History. This week, uh, we have a splendid little show uh, that uh, goes back into ice hockey. We, uh, as you may remember, a couple of weeks back, uh, we had our, our friend Andrew Ross on talking about sort of the uh, the years prior to uh, what the NHL would like to conveniently call the uh, original six. And as you know, you hockey fans out there, uh, the original six is a, a misnomer uh, by uh, all stretches of the imagination. There was uh, a whole bunch of years uh, when the NHL and its more frisky days, shall we say, was uh, quite an interesting little uh, a little uh, effort uh, and journey going on. And uh, one of those teams that stuck out in our conversation with Andrew is uh, a team that we're going to be focusing on uh, with our conversation this week uh, with our guest Dale Morrissey. Uh, and it's it's about uh, the uh, New York Americans uh, uh, for one year known as the or the last year of their existence, uh, the Brooklyn Americans. And this is a team that uh, literally was the last one uh, to be pruned, shall we say, from the NHL in the uh, 19, I think it was 19, we'll, we'll get into it, 1942, 1945, we, the, the real officialness of it is debatable, but uh, it was the last team uh, to be hived uh, off of uh, the uh, National Hockey League. Uh, and that uh, actually uh, then became, or for the, for the 25 years that followed, the quote-unquote original six teams. So the uh, New York slash Brooklyn Americans, that's our focus today with uh, film documentarian Dale Morrissey. And uh, we're going to be talking about not only the team and uh, the the forgottenness of this team, right? You New York Rangers fans think uh, that you were the sort of first 
uh, NHL franchise uh, in the, the metropolitan area. No, 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 no. Uh, and that's why this uh, episode and this little series, this little podcast exists. We want to correct those wrongs uh, and learn more about them. We're going to talk about a movie, actually, that Dale uh, created. Uh, it's a documentary called Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans. And uh, you heard a little uh, sort of promo at the beginning of the show. Uh, and yes, the dulcet tones of Larry King, of all people, the uh, you know one of the more famous Brooklynites. Uh, out there uh, now enjoying life out in uh, in Los Angeles following the uh, original Brooklyn Dodgers now in Los Angeles have been for some time you may often see him on Dodger broadcasts behind home plate sitting next to uh, Bert Sugarman and his lovely wife Mary Hart uh, Larry is a fixture at Dodger games but uh, as a Brooklyn native uh, is the uh, narration behind this very fine film called uh, again only the dead know the Brooklyn Americans and Dale uh, Morrissey is the uh, director, the producer, the writer of it, and it's a it's a fascinating tale. Uh, it's got all kinds of intrigue. Uh, there's an amazing uh, storylines, plural, and uh, we're going to get into all of that. The history of the New York Americans slash Brooklyn Americans, also known as the Amerks, uh, that that was sort of their nickname. Uh, nobody really seems to know uh, why that contraction became the convenient way of uh, referring to the team, although it makes a lot of sense. But there's no real. Doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it, but uh, we'll also refer to them as the Amherst during the course of this conversation. Uh, and that's coming up with Dale uh, in just a couple of seconds. So uh, stay tuned. I learned a whole ton of stuff, and I think you will too, and probably uh, hopefully enjoy it uh, as well. A couple of promotional things. Let's uh, get those going and out of the way, shall we? Oldschoolshirts.com uh, is uh, the place from uh, Cincinnati land in the beautiful uh, state of Ohio. P.F. Wilson and friends, uh, the uh, proprietors of such site, OldSchoolShirts.com, uh, it is a, a great place to find high-quality T-shirts uh, that are uh, largely devoted to things uh, from the past, uh, teams, leagues, logos, hell, even shopping malls and department stores and uh, amusement parks and all kinds of other things that uh, may have faded from your memory but have not been forgotten by OldSchoolShirts.com uh, in, in beautiful and convenient T-shirt form. And once you uh, find something and stumble across something you might like there, and I do believe you'll find a uh, New York or Brooklyn Americans T-shirt uh, in the offerings there. So perfect excuse to use that promo code, Good Seats and get 10% off all of your uh, all your purchases there at OldSchoolShirts.com. Now, you don't have to just buy a, an American's shirt, but uh, anything you find there, anything on the site, uh, buy one, buy 10, buy 100, buy for your friends, your neighbors, uh, whatever. Go for it. OldSchoolShirts.com, and uh, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS and uh, enjoy on us 10% all of your purchases. Uh, we also want to remind you about our friends out in San Diego and our, our, uh, our particular friend, Dean Mitchell, uh, who's been a longtime sponsor of this show, and his site is called SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, once you've done getting your shirts, uh, is the place to go to find all your other memorabilia stuff uh, around teams and leagues uh, formerly alive and well, but uh, for whatever reasons, no longer. Uh, and that's uh, buttons and pennants and uh, media guides and uh, uh, programs and uh, unit bumpers, you know, all kinds of stuff, but playing cards, all kinds of stuff. From teams and leagues. I don't know if he's got American stuff in there. They probably does. Uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, reissues and stuff and the colorful sweaters of the New York slash Brooklyn Americans, which we'll get into in our chat in a second. Uh, but uh, give him a check out. It's uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com. And when you uh, decide to purchase something there, make sure you use the promo code GOODSEATS uh, at checkout on that site. Good uh, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Oh, boy. 
Uh, long day. 15% off. Yes, 15% off all of your purchases there. Use that code GOODSEATS at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And then one last promotional item I don't want to forget. Our good friends at Audible for all your audiobook needs. If you want to get a free month of the audiobook service known as Audible, it's the best on the planet. Uh, and uh, enjoy a free audiobook download for yours to keep, right? It is yours to keep, uh, no matter how long your device lives, even if you cancel the service. Why not give it a try? It's basically risk-free. Uh, you can cancel at any time. And the place to do it, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Yep, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Get your free audiobook download, a free one-month trial of the subscription service at Audible. You can cancel at any time. And like I said, the the, the downloaded book, the downloaded audiobook that you do uh, uh, put on your device, it is yours to keep even if and when you cancel the service. And we thank you for giving Audible a try at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. All right, we have uh, ex- exhausted not only myself, but all of our promotional uh, banter. And we thank all of our sponsors, of course. We can't do this show without them. And uh, we appreciate you giving them a try. Uh, we also appreciate you giving a listen to our very fine conversation uh, with Dale Morrissey and, a, and an intriguing one about the forgotten New York City-based NHL hockey team known as the New York and then for one year, Brooklyn Americans, coming up right here on the show. There is this uh, this team called the New York and then for one brief year, the Brooklyn Americans. And um, why don't we start with uh, perhaps how uh, this team uh, in, in both of its, I guess, incarnations came across your radar, which hopefully is a segue into uh, maybe your professional and or uh, other interests uh, in life? Sure. So I was working on a film uh, about a guy named George Patterson who scored the first goal for the Toronto Maple Leafs back in February 1927. Uh, the, the night they, they had stopped being the Toronto St. Patrick's and, uh, and officially became the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, on a cold night in February 1927, uh, uh, they they donned these Tommy Leafs uh, hockey sweaters, and they played against the New York Americans, ironically enough, uh, at the Mutual Street uh, Arena in Toronto. And uh, this uh, tall, uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of prototype power forward, uh, before they were power forwards. Uh, sort of player uh, named George Patterson uh, slammed home the the first goal in the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And so I was working on a documentary about this guy um, who'd sort of become lost to the history of not just hockey, but to the history of Toronto Maple Leafs fans and, and, and to the team itself. And so how I stumbled upon the New York Americans is after his very brief stint with the Leafs, he went on to have a, a very uh, good NHL career, and a, a good chunk of that was playing for the New York Americans. And so I was looking for somebody to talk to me about the New York Americans and, and about um, uh, about George's time with, with the Ambrooks. And I reached out to a guy named Stephen M. Cohen, who was uh, a member of SIR, the Society for International Hockey Research. And um, he emailed me back uh, and uh, 
He said, well, it just so happens that the Brooklyn Historical Society has this uh, temporary exhibit about the Brooklyn Americans. Why don't you come down, interview me here, and you can shoot a little bit of B-roll and uh, do some interviews. So I did that, October 2015, I think it was. And uh, went down and did that, brought my daughter with me, and she uh, helped out a bit. And uh, we did the interview, and we got along really well, and we were kind of looking over stuff. And, and I knew something about the Americans and stuff, and it, it kind of fascinated me. And we were talking more and more about how the Americans were kind of lost to history, just like George was. And while we were talking afterwards, while he's signing his releases, and we're looking over some of the artifacts, he said, you know, I've always wanted to write a book about this. He said, I haven't got time. And I said to Steve, I said, you know, it would make a great film. And he said, you know what? It would make a great film. You ever want to make a movie? Talk to me. I'd be happy to be a part. My daughter, who was in the seventh grade, she heard all this. We're walking back, you know, trying to find a, you know, hot dog stand or something to eat lunch afterwards. She said, Dad, that's great. This man wants to make a movie with you. And I said, oh, you know, sweetie, guys say that all the time. They don't really mean it. So, and, and they don't, right? So fast forward uh, about a month or so, and my agent emails me on a panic saying, Dale, we need ideas from you for like three more hockey movies. Oh, I'm stumped. So I emailed Steve Cohen and said, do you, uh, did, did you still actually really mean it? Do you want to make this movie? I get an email from him like five minutes later. Yep, we're all in. Absolutely. Great idea. We want to, absolutely, we want, not only do we want to make the movie, we want to be executive producers, anything. And that's how I came about doing it. So you're you're a, a filmmaker by trade, or is this sort of a side thing? Yeah, for you? this is how I make a very meager living. <laughs> and, and 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 why uh, hockey in particular, or is there are there other genres that uh, you're also well, into? it's history in general, and it just happens that uh, I like sports. I'm a sports guy. I I grew up playing hockey and uh, basketball, football. Those are the three main sports that I played, and. Um, being uh, born and raised in Oshawa, Ontario, just, you know, Stone's Throw from Toronto, uh, Leafs fan, Toronto Maple Leafs fan since I was born. So long-suffering Toronto Maple Leafs fan. And so I sort of grew up immersed in hockey history um, and uh, sort of um, grew up in the era of Harold Ballard and not so great times for the Leafs. So, History was really all we had to cling to <laughs> as, as a Leafs fan. Uh, and, and so hockey history was something that was just sort of bred into me, I think. And uh, I have a love of history. And so I, I work on work uh, in making history films. And so it just seemed like a natural fit to, to work on sports history. And it's a nice, nice way to get people interested in history, I think, to... Uh, they watch a sports movie that happens to be a little history, and before they know it, they're learning a little something along the way. So once you once you uh, figured out that uh, you had some willing participants uh, to to explore this uh, Americans story, um, how yeah. do you so give us give our audience a bit of a sense? Because you know, obviously, the uh, armchair historian maybe that's I could maybe possibly qualify myself as that. Um, but uh, in terms, I'm really curious, uh, and maybe the audience is too, is sort of is. Uh, you have the idea. Uh, you have the blessing of your daughter. Uh, how do you approach the process? Uh, what, what is the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the, how you how you look at or approach uh, the story or the themes or perhaps how you how you might even architect 
this? Like, w- what is the narrative? Or, or, you know, give us a sense of sort of how you decide to kind of actually go to it once you decide you're going to do it. Well, that's a, that's a good question. And it's, it's something that you have to map out for every film that you do. So every film is different and every every subject is different. So um, a lot of the films that I work on are sometimes considered sidebar stories um, because they'll be about a, a specific character, um, a person who might be sort of forgotten about within history or within sports history. So this film was about a team. So what we had to do was was break it down a little bit and find characters within the narrative of the team. So we, it couldn't just be on this date, this happened, then on this date, this happened. And, you know, and then, you know, insert stat, insert, you know, game stat and, and so on. Otherwise it would become really boring, really fast. So we had to find some characters that we could pull into the film and that we can focus on and, and that the audience could focus on and they could, become interested in they could root for um even though again because these are history films you know how it's going to end but you still have to have something to root for so we had to have uh, a big bill dwyer who was a tragic figure we had to have uh, a red dutton we had to have these types of guys in there that you could kind of root for and then you sort of structure the film in a way that you can tell you can sort of form the narrative around these key figures and they're, and they're tragic figures in a way. And then the team itself becomes almost its own character. And it becomes like a, a David versus Goliath story. And, and it becomes a tragic story as well. I don't know if that answers your question entirely, but, but that's sort of the approach that, that we sort of take. Sure. No, it, it does. And I guess, um, uh, I, I guess sort of the follow-up to that is, um, how much of the story did you know or think you knew or entering and jumping in? And then, frankly, as you got into it, uh, you know, with footage and, and research and articles and microfiche and all those other sort of things, um, how do you not get sidetracked with all the sort of what I suspect would be rabbit holes of, of intrigue and, and uh, discoveries along the way? Well, one of the nice things is, is being an outsider looking in. Uh, I'm not from New York City. I'm not from Brooklyn. So I don't have that vested interest. Um, and so I don't feel the need to be an apologist when I'm, I'm doing these sorts of things. Um, and that helps. How much of the story did I know? I knew that the Brooklyn Americans existed. And I knew that they'd come to an abrupt end and that they were the last team to play before the quote unquote, and I'm using very large air quotes here, the uh, original six. And I knew that the New York Americans predated the Rangers by a season. And that, you know, one of those great things that you could always, you know, win a free beer at, if, you know, if you wanted to try and hit somebody up for a beer at a bar and say, oh yeah, who was the first team to play in New York City? And they'd be like, oh, the Rangers. And go, oh, no, it was the Americans. And sure enough, you all of a sudden you had a beer. Um, and so I knew that stuff. I, and uh, and then I, I knew a little bit about Big Bill Dwyer, who was the owner, but I didn't know much else. So I didn't know any, I didn't know that the Hamilton Tigers were, were the, the team that they were basically, the, the shell of the Hamilton Tigers uh, were scooped up and then taken to New York. I didn't know any of that stuff. 
And um, so, and, and the politics and the back and forth, I didn't know a lot about that, nor did I know a lot about the, I mean, I knew about the Roaring Twenties, obviously, but I didn't know about, uh, you know, the Forest Hotel and uh, and all these sorts of things. So a lot of that kind of comes, it was stuff that you you get to dig into. And, and that's really fun stuff. And, and uh, as someone who has a degree in history, you know, is a trained historian, um, before I went into journalism and filmmaking, that stuff is really a lot of fun. And, um, and getting to, to sort of do a lot of the research and then build the, build the narrative around that is a lot of fun. And um, you end up rooting for these guys. You know, they, they, they become, they, they stop becoming abstracts from the past and, and just names on paper and they become real living beings again and, and, and become people that you root for again. And it's, it's a lot of fun. All right, well, let's set the scene a little bit. So let's, you know, uh, uh, set the Wayback Machine to the, you know, circa roaring 1920s, at least in the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, we've sure. got uh, a booming economy and uh, we, we all know what's going to come later in the decade. However, uh, you've mentioned or hinted at some of the uh, interesting characters, shall we say, that uh, kind of uh, almost our pillars, I guess, were foundational uh, poles, if you will, for this, uh, for this yeah. story. Maybe, maybe we start with Thomas Duggan, right? It's Duggan? Is that how you say it? Yeah, I say I say Duggan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he's Thomas not around Duggan. to sort of counter us, so I guess we'll agree <laughs> to call him Thomas Duggan. But um, maybe yeah. I can give the audience a bit of a sense of sort of perhaps maybe why the story kind of maybe has an acorn rootage uh, with him. So, so yeah, so Tommy Duggan is a sports promoter, kind of ne'er do well guy. Uh, best known in Montreal, he's into uh, horse racing, dog racing, he's into ice hockey, all sorts of things. And uh, he's always sniffing around Mount Royal Arena and uh, and that sort of thing. And he's he's, but he's not he's not well healed, he's not well moneyed, but he's he's um um uh, Stan Fischler had a great line in the film. He says. Um, He's what you would call a consultant before uh, consultants were <laughs> before they before they had the term consultant. So you know he 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 was the guy always he, he was a schemer basically Tommy Duggan and uh, so he um, he he had this he had this idea and to, and he pitched to, which he pitched to the NHL which was expanding into the United States and you have to remember that the NHL um, post World War II. I mean, it's formed in 1917 at the height of the Great War. Um, but but the, after this, and in the early 1920s, the, the NHL is a league that's struggling. Um, they're under attack from uh, other league, other upstart leagues, and, and things aren't going really that well for them. And so Tommy Duggan comes along at a time when they think, hey, maybe this is a good idea. And he says, I've got this really great idea sell me some franchise rights and I'll go to the U S and I'll set them up. Problem there is, is Tommy Duggan really doesn't have the money to get that done. So what he does is he flips these franchise rights. He sells one to Boston, turns out to be the Boston Bruins. They do. Okay. Um, and Boston already has a, a history of hockey. They, they have a, a history of amateur and college hockey already. So, so it's, it's a, it's a, a well set up market. And then he goes on and he sells a team to New York city which on the surface doesn't seem like a natural fit, but uh, they're building a new Madison Square Garden there, and they need 
dates. They they need dates filled. Uh, you know, they they got boxing and they've got uh, indoor uh, bicycle racing and all kinds of other crazy things, a circus. But they they need uh, a lot of dates filled. And so hockey would fill a lot of dates. And so this is a good idea. But they don't have a money man. They don't have a guy who, who will buy the franchise. And that's where a guy named Big Bill Dwyer comes in. Big Bill Dwyer is a gangster. He's kind of like um, uh, the Al Capone of, uh, of the East Coast. In a lot of ways, he's probably even bigger than Al Capone. Um, and he, he's a rum runner and... Um, and uh, he's uh, he he he, he, does, he does everything. He, he basically owns these coasts. Well, Bill Bill Dwyer though was pretty much he was kind of like sort of the uh, one of the sort of eastern seaboard kingpins of uh, of uh, of alcohol uh, running, if you will, in uh, during the prohibition, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so he uh, he and he's the founder. He's one of the co-founders of the Irish Mob, and um, so he's. He's got money to burn, and he wants to have something legit. The great thing about having all this money is you're a very wealthy guy, but the thing is, is people kind of look down on you because they know you're they know you're a criminal, they know you're a mob boss, and so. But he wants to kind of break into society a little bit, and he wants um, something legitimate. So Tommy uh, Duggan introduces him to hockey on one of their. As far as we know, probably one of his trips to Montreal. And he says, hey, I kind of like this game. As they say, there's a soccer born every minute. And um, so uh, he buys into uh, the, the franchise. And um, funny enough, um, one of the other franchises gets sold to Pittsburgh. And um, uh, Big Bill Dwyer ends up being the, the money man behind the scenes, but he ends up being the money man for Pittsburgh as well. So he ends up really... Uh, in a roundabout way, owning two hockey teams. Yeah, the team known as the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates of of the NHL at the time. Um, probably a story right. for some of our Pittsburgh listeners for another episode. But okay, so That's before right. we go any further between uh, sort of this budding relationship between Duggan and Dwyer, any insight as to how like they even know each other? Like Duggan would seem to be a hustler of some sort or sports promoter, sure. But how does, yeah. how, does how does a guy like that get so, uh, intertwined with? Uh, Arguably, uh, the big sort of uh, the big heavy in the uh, uh, against the, the prohibition of the United States. Yeah, so their paths were crossed. Um, their paths crossed because of, uh, of their connections in Montreal. Because Dwyer comes up and uh, he does business in Montreal because a lot of his booze is coming down from Canada and um, and the distilleries in Montreal. And so that's how their paths cross. And it's just a little bit of a, a simple twist of fate. And next thing you know, these guys are getting to know each other. So. All right, so so Dwyer becomes so Dwyer becomes interested. That's great, and Duggan sort of got uh, perhaps a, a a fish on the line, so to speak. Um, yeah, but it can't happen without uh, Madison Square Garden uh, being part of the mix. And maybe you can sort of tell us how our uh, our other friend, our other sort of third pillar in this story, a guy named Tex Rickard. Rickard, how do you pronounce Tex that? Rickard. Tex Rickard. Yeah. Tex Rickard. Sure. Right. So, so how, who is he, and where does he come along, and how does he play a role in this? Uh, embryonic uh, setup to what ultimately became the Americans. So George Tex Rickard uh, is, a, is a boxing promoter and uh, just a master marketer, and uh, he's he's part of Madison Square Garden. And, and Tex gets his start uh, promoting boxing matches out west, 
and uh, he, you know, had a cattle operation. He owned casinos. He did everything. Um, and um, he's kind of a Donald Trump of his time um, in that he's all about the brand. He's all about branding, brand recognition, attaching his name to things. And so he's he's sort of the he's sort of the, the main main man, and he becomes attached to Madison Square Garden. Is one of the guys who's helping usher Madison Square Garden, the new Madison Square Garden, along, which is the the third Madison Square Garden, I guess. Um, again, not being a New York City guy, I kind of I got lost in the, for a while in all the different Madison Square Gardens. But um, um, so uh, this one is up more uptown, I guess, not. Not the, not the one that's the current one that we think of, but this one's a little further uptown. But um, so, um, so this this Madison Square Garden is the one that's being built by by Rickard and his group of guys, and um, so Hex comes up with this scheme that uh, he can lure in a hockey team, and so that's what they do, and they come up with this agreement to to bring them all in. And uh, it's what we think of as a, as a sucker's deal. And uh, they lease Madison Square Garden to the New York Americans. Um, and, and Duggan is the guy who's supposed to be the guy who takes care of all the paperwork. And uh, somehow they, they miss on, on this and they miss putting in a, a, a non-compete clause. And so under this lack of non-compete clause, the uh, – Madison Square Garden is allowed to have their own hockey team if uh, things go well. Not only are they allowed to have their own hockey team, but uh, the American Americans um, have to be willing supporters of this to the NHL and say, yes, we're in support of this. And um, so I think we kind of see a foreshadowing of where things are going to go on that. Well, all right, so how is, how is this team essentially being birthed then? Because uh, from what I can tell, uh, Dwyer takes a bit of a public uh, persona in kind of announcing the team name and, and that kind of stuff versus sort of being behind the scenes. Or do I have that wrong? Is he kind of letting sort of record and Duggan kind of sort of – I mean, I, I'm just curious as to Dwyer's how, – how visible or invisible is he in the formative days of getting the team sort of named uh, and, uh, and going? Sure, no, that's a good question. So, so Dwyer is absolutely the money man. Without him, this team doesn't happen because he's the guy who's going to sign all the checks and he's got all the money. But he's also, early on, he is one of the public faces of the team. Things sour a little bit, though, because very quickly the NHL realizes, hey, wait a minute, we have a gangster, no rum runner, who's part of the team. So before long, we have, um, um, uh, we have text record, and then we have um, Tommy Duggan and, and that sort of thing, and, and those guys sort of taking, sort of, sort of becoming um, governors for the team. So they're the guys who are sort of the front for the team. But really, it's Dwyer who is the guy who's who's the owner of the team. So that's what happens uh, from a paperwork point of view. But at the end of the day, at, at the end of the day, the buck stops with Big Bill Dwyer. All right, so we'll get to sort of how they sort of initially get a team on the onto the ice in a second, but um, maybe to your to your knowledge, which I couldn't sort of determine in my cursory understanding of the story, uh, is the name of the team, how maybe that came about, and and perhaps a bit about the jerseys, which I think still to this day uh, are probably uh, among, if not the, 
most uh, colorful and vivid and um, I think, frankly, just uh, original uh, jerseys uh, ever to be seen in the NHL, he says humbly. Yeah, they are pretty, pretty, pretty impressive jerseys. Um, although, we, being Canadian, we tend to call them hockey sweaters, but um, uh, they they are pretty impressive. And uh, Rochester, the Rochester Americans ended up taking over that color scheme and uh, and the logo design um, later on for the AHL. But um, they originally they were supposed to be called the New York uh, American Tigers. Um, because uh, Rick, uh, because Wire had bought what was originally the Hamilton Tigers, and then he dropped that, and then they had just ended up becoming the New York Americans. And so they originally had that star-spangled kind of look, but with a tiger over top of them. And the, the team, the the the, the sweater um, goes through about three or four different designs. So there's like a a uh, shield and then there's the star spangled and then there's an N Y and then just like there's an N Y C American type thing with letters all over. They, they go through a lot of different uh, designs before they get to Brooklyn and they're just like the white with the red Brooklyn down the, down the on a diagonal. So they go through a lot of different designs. Um, but uh, the star spangled one that, that uh, is, I think is the one that they're most familiar and most famous for. Um, and uh, funny enough, skipping way ahead to, to the 1970s, when um, the New York Islanders were awarded their uh, expansion franchise, the ownership group wanted to call their team the New York Americans and uh, were denied that by the NHL. And they had a design put in place that was going to mimic very closely the original New York Americans design. And, so it, would, and it would have been a nice fit because they're on Long Island and they're very close and it would have been a nice fit. Any uh, any insight as to why? I'm going to guess it's because the NHL maybe didn't want to necessarily... Uh, they didn't They didn't want to bring up any old memories of that team. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think they, they could use the licensing uh, with the uh, Rochester Americans as a cop-out, but uh, they, yeah. That's very, that's they, wanted to, they wanted to leave the past here in the past. See, that's very interesting. Now, we've, we've stumbled across the Islanders a little bit in our, in our um, journeys into the WHA and how sort of the NHL used that as a, as a device to kind of uh, hopefully uh, prevent or at least uh, slow down uh, their, uh, their use of New York as an expansion uh, market uh, when the WHA launched. But that, I didn't know that. And that seems, you know, that's also seems that's actually consistent uh, with a bunch of sort of. Uh, conversations and, and areas that we've explored thus far where and again we're jumping ahead but you know the modern day leagues right and their uh shall we say selective memories when it comes to teams uh and maybe predecessor or challenger leagues um you know sometimes they're warmly embraced sometimes they're begrudgingly so sometimes they're they're whitewashed altogether uh and history continues to sort of re uh, gurgitate and uh, and bring back the issues uh, after such whitewashing, right? And and you know we've seen it with um, you know in some of our, our previous episodes around the WHA, right? There's no, you know the the, the NHL. You you could argue kind of almost has a uh, sort of a, a a memory loss when it comes to that, especially in say halls of fame and that kind of stuff. We we've seen it. So it's very interesting I, the how how and why. I'd love to dig into maybe why or some of the intrigue perhaps as to why well, I, I when you had all that great iconography, very, right? 
Yeah, no, it's it's very true. And the NHL does it with its own teams as well, and um, and they allow their own teams to do it, mm-hmm. and and they they have a habit of um, of uh, rewriting their own history, sometimes to the uh, to the detriment of their own fans. You know, they sell their fans a, a bill of goods sometimes. You can look at the Ottawa Senators. When they re, when they you know put a team in in Ottawa, you know um, they allowed the Ottawa Senators to hang Stanley Cup banners from the from a previous era's hockey team that had nothing to do with the Ottawa Senators, um, but they allowed them to hang those Stanley Cup banners and lay claim to them. Um, and you can look at the is recently is the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, celebrating, and again, I'm using really big air quotes here, their 100th anniversary recently, when in reality it was only their 90th anniversary. And um, because under the the founder of the team, Con Smythe, and J.P. Bickle, who said, Tommy Police exist now. We bought out this town of St. Pat's. They they don't exist. These are the Tommy Police moving forward. But the, and and everything moving forward from that date existed and you know they celebrated a 75th celebrated an 80th a 90th sorry 70 a 50th a 75th and 80th based on those dates and then somewhere along the way different marketing groups different marketing groups within the organization said oh wait a minute let's reset the clock because all of a sudden now we can claim i'm being very cynical now but we can reclaim uh the toronto st pat's and the and the toronto uh the toronto arenas um stanley cups and we can reclaim these teams and, and they've done that. And all of a sudden they have a whole 100 year history when before they had a 90 year history. Yeah. Well, don't worry about being cynical. Uh, cynicism is a, a specialty here on this little podcast, but, um, uh, but I digress. <laughs> and, we're off, and now we're getting off topic too, but yeah, yeah. well, that's okay. I, but, but all right. But so we're going to, we're going to the morass of sort of historical, um, uh, missteps and or forgetfulness, uh, I think kind of, uh, is sort of the last sort of foundational piece to the story before we literally get to the Amherst, uh, their nickname, by the way, in um, uh, in earnest. And that is uh, the aforementioned uh, Hamilton Tigers. Um, why are they important in this story uh, as the team is getting going? Sure. Well, so the Hamilton Tigers, another forgotten NHL team, and uh, the Ham- Hamilton um, for – I guess some listeners, uh, some of your listeners, I guess, uh, they're Americans, they may not know, but Hamilton has long been sort of the emotional whipping boy for uh, NHL, for the NHL when it comes to expansion. Um, anytime there's any team that needs to move, they would threaten to move them to Hamilton and get people living in Hamilton all excited and, go, and then pull the rug out. They're sort of like uh, uh, Charlie yeah, Brown. They're, and they're probably the, the Birmingham of uh, of Canada, the Birmingham, Alabama of Canada, especially when it comes to like football. That Birmingham is a, exactly, yeah, that's exactly what they are, yeah. And so, but um, without Hamilton, uh, the NHL probably would have folded very early on because uh, what happened was the NHL early days um, again they were under threat, and um, so they needed to put a team somewhere in Ontario very quickly, and. Um, the Quebec Bulldogs, which was a founding team of the NHL in 1917, had folded and was sitting idle. And so they they uh, sort of reanimated the team, if you will, and uh, sold it to um, a, um, a company in Hamilton. Um, 
And uh, they said, okay, we're going to rename it. We're going to rename it the Hamilton Tigers. And what they did was uh, they, they propped them up there. And, um, and so just like that, by selling them really quickly to the apps, uh, the apps, uh, ice, uh, pure ice company, um, they, uh, they, uh, they managed to, um, basically save the NHL. And so, uh, and this happens in the early, early 1920s. And, and so for the first little bit, um, Hamilton, they do okay. They don't do terribly well on ice, but they draw pretty good crowds. And by the mid 1920s, they're slowly and slowly improving. And during the 1924-25 season, they have a great season. And in the spring of 2025, 20, they're on the cusp of winning the Stanley Cup. They've made it to the finals, uh, the NHL finals against Montreal. And they, they beat Montreal. And they're coming back on the train to Hamilton. And uh, the players um, get together on the train. And they hatch a scheme. And they hatch a revolt. And they say, um, listen, if we don't get more pay... Um, we're not going to play for the Stanley Cup. And this is a season where there has been, uh, an ex- there's, been there's already been a little bit of expansion, so there's been more games played, there's been a longer training camp, but there has been more pay. So the players figure we're playing more, but we're not getting paid more, so we want more money. Uh, and they refuse to play in the Stanley Cup final unless they got more money. So the entire matter ends up on the desk of uh, uh, league president Frank Calder. Now, Frank Calder is a no-nonsense kind of guy. He was uh, a retired um, schoolmaster who ended up being president of the league. So he tells the players, either you play for the Stanley Cup or you're suspended and you forfeit your season. Well, the players called his bluff. Turns out Frank wasn't bluffing, and he suspended everybody. The Montreal Canadiens, who had lost to Hamilton, they end up being elevated to their status uh, being elevated over Hamilton and they go on and play for the Stanley Cup against uh, the Vancouver Cougars I believe of uh, the Pacific League and um, ultimately the Canadians lost to Vancouver and if I'm not mistaken that was the last time that um, an NHL team lost to an outside team for the Stanley Cup because after that season it was uh, NHL teams only that played for the Stanley Cup but um uh, so anyway, so that was that was sort of the beginning of the end for the Hamilton Tigers. So what happened was Frank Calder suspended the players, and uh, in 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 the process he suspended the team. So fast fast forward during the summer, and Bill Dwyer comes on the scene and says, "Well, I got this franchise in New York City, but I got no players, so I want to buy the Hamilton Tigers and move them to New York City." And that's what he thinks he's done. Um, and he, he offers the rights to uh, Percy Thompson, the GM, uh, $75,000 for all the players. And again, Frank Calder steps in and says, oh, no, 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 no. This team is suspended. These players are suspended. You can't just do that. Um, and so uh, in the end, uh, Dwyer strikes a deal to get the players. And they go to training camp. And then Calder steps in again and says, well, no, these guys can't play unless they write me a letter of apology. So all the players sit down and pen them letters of apology. And Frank Calder, being Frank Calder, sends the letters back and says, sorry, guys, but these letters, they're not sincere enough. You have to try again. <laughs> he makes them write a second letter 
and only after they write after they write their second letter of apology does he uh, allow them to uh, move on with their hockey lives and play again. Yeah, it seems though a little murky though in the history books as sort of what sort of happened here. Um, uh, is that definitive or, I mean, for example, I know the NHL yeah it's, did it's, not continue the history of the Tigers to to to, to inc- be incorporated with the Americans, et cetera. Yeah, so that so the Absol Ice Company uh, still owns the owns the team, owns the logo, and they basically take back the team and logo, uh, and they end up being rebranded and reborn later on that season as a semi-pro team, and they exist after that as a semi-pro hockey team, and they play in the Canada Canada Pro League or something to that effect, and the Canada Pro Hockey League. And uh, which is sort of like a, a tear down from the NHL, and um, so players would play there, and then they would get they would get bought their play, their rights would get bought and sold by NHL teams after that. But that was sort of the end of the uh, Hamilton Tigers, just like that. So Frank Calder basically came to an end, and you know the team was was doing okay in Hamilton, but but uh, the the Abso uh, Ice Company was quite happy to to have this come to an end because uh, it was becoming increasingly expensive to operate the team in Hamilton. And uh, so Frank Calder uh, did them a favor by, by suspending the team. Well, it's interesting, though, because it seems like a marriage of convenience because, uh, gee, there seems to be this new team in New York that could use some players, and uh, it looks like Dwyer uh, in particular, or, or behind the scenes, uh, gets uh, basically all of these players uh, through whatever surreptitious or, uh, I don't know, curious means – uh, and effectively, it, 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 I guess without sort of being officially named and or continuous in the history books, effectively, the, the bulk of the Hamilton Tigers becomes the first roster for the Americans, right? A lot of them do, yes. He, he, he buys a lot of the players. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And um, he, 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 doubles, he doubles, triples some of their salaries. He offers them huge raises. Some of them are getting like... 200% over some of their previous salaries. It's incredible the amount of money he was throwing at them. And and that's not unusual for Big Bill. He was that kind of uh, guy. As long as the money was flowing in, he was quite happy to spend it on anybody and anything. And it meant that uh, he, at least in theory, he was going to get some kind of return. He figured if he spent a lot of money on these players, he would get a winning product. Didn't really work out for him, but he thought that's what was going to happen. Well, it would, it would seem, given the the, uh, the the performance of the team uh, as Hamilton in their last year there, uh, that uh, they would be off to a fairly decent start uh, as they uh, begin their uh, their lives as the uh, New York Americans on, uh, what, December 15th, 1925. Um, maybe you can take us to that first game because uh, it seems like it was a pretty, pretty big hit, at least in the stands, no? Well, sure. It was it was a huge event. Uh, it was like the social event of the year in Manhattan. Uh, everybody was there. It was a white tie event. It was that that game was uh, a fundraiser for uh, a medical charity. I I can't remember the exact charity right now. I have a copy of the program in my research notes. But a uh, huge event. Um, everybody who was anybody was there, including uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, members of the Astros, just anybody who was society was at that game. Um, and uh, marching bands were there to play the national anthems. It was just incredible. It was a spectacle. So they play the Montreal Canadiens, and they end up losing. But um, that's really not uh, 
surprising, I think, when you when you think that, uh, uh, that these guys from small town Canada were plunked into the middle of Prohibition, New York City, Times Square, uh, filled and, and um, surrounded by big bull wire and uh, you know, dancing girls and all the booze they could drink and all the parties they could go to. Uh, it's probably not surprising that they lost that game. And it's probably not surprising that they lost as many games as they did. What we probably should be surprised about is that they won any games at all. Well, this was also, I don't know if this was uh, the first major event in the actual Madison Square Garden, but I think it's important to remember, I guess uh, we've sort of hinted at it, that uh, this is a fairly new, almost brand spanking new facility, this Madison Square Garden. So so that probably had some allure to it, right, as a, as a major event in a relatively yeah. sparkling new building. Yeah, so, so Madison Square Garden is pretty much a brand new building, and hockey is, while hockey has been around, uh, played at uh, uh, the amateur level and sort of the semi-pro level, uh, this is the first professional, really, truly professional game played. Uh, this is the NHL. This is the big time, and it's come to New York City, and it's been promoted as that. And you got to remember, you've got Tex Record promoting, and this guy knows from promoting. So that helps. Well, all right, despite that sort of gangbuster start, and, you know, they, they've relatively – more been on the on the ice, right? I think they finished fifth overall, uh, twelve wins in a you know a forty some odd game season. Um, I, I think the real story, the real intrigue is again. You alluded to it before, but maybe we dig a little bit deeper into into it now, which is uh, the role of Madison Square Garden and this idea of a separate, maybe more wholly or fully or centrally owned by MSG franchise. I guess of of their own. I, I, I'm, I'm a little unclear on this because you can see yeah, yeah. they were already, already in cahoots with, you know, the, the guys now already that brought the Americans in there. What, what is the, why the difference and or the, the intrigue of perhaps going somewhat of a separate route and creating yet another team, not even after almost a full year of just of, of original play with the Americans? So sure. So here's the reason why. So the Americans, even though they stick to join out most nights and, you know, uh, because they're too hungover to play or whatever the case may be. Um, most of the times it's because they're too hungover. Um, they, they are a big draw. They are packing the place every night. And so Tex Rickard and the rest of the guys at MSG are sitting there thinking, okay, we're, we're leasing the arena to Big Bill and, and, and company, and we're getting – we're getting a cut of the gate, a small cut of the gate. But if we owned a team, we would get everything. We would get all of the gate. So why don't we just own our own team? We would still get a cut of the gate from the Americans, but then we would have our own team and we would get everything then. So, you know, so to them, this makes perfect sense. Sure, they're cannibalizing their their team that they're leasing it to, but they don't really care about the Americans anymore now. The Americans have have served their purpose. They have proven that hockey will work in Madison Square Garden. Now they're ready to have their own team, and that's what they do. So they go to the NHL, and they have this they have this agreement signed that says, "Hey, they, the the Rangers can exist, and the Americans not only can the Americans not do anything about it, but they have to support 
a Rangers franchise being pitched to the National Hockey League. So, so it's, it's a, a fait de complete. You know, it's, it's, it's a done deal. They go there and, and the Rangers are a done deal. And that's what happens. And, um, and so it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's murky at some point, but in other ways, it's, it's as crystal clear as, as brand new ice on a frozen pond, man. I mean, it's, it's just as clear as, as you can see. Well, perhaps looking through the lens of history. So let me, I'll ask the sort of uh, naive questions then, maybe two of them. One, um, you know, the NHL is still a relatively fragile thing, right? Uh, and, you know, it's only been one year, right, that the New York uh, Americans have existed, or maybe even before a full year, right, when some of these machinations were sort of uh, in the works, right? And and so that's that's kind of a, a riskier bet to place yet a second team, <clears throat> excuse me, in a brand new market. Uh, but then second, why? I, I I guess I'm just curious as to why starting a brand new franchise from scratch versus trying to figure out some kind of way to renegotiate or uh, contort uh, the Americans' uh, contract and relationship to maybe evolve it from a lease relationship to maybe a full ownership stake. Like, why wouldn't a Dwyer and Rickard and, and those guys, I, I'm sure they would be more than interested to perhaps receive an offer of some sort? Uh, yes, sir. So first of all, there was no offer. There was no interest in, in that sort of a deal. And so that that's, that deal doesn't exist. There's no interest in that. They, they ranked, the Madison Square Garden wanted their own team. They didn't want, they wanted their own Rangers. They wanted a second team. They, they And then they wanted Dwyer and, and, and those guys to be tenants, and they wanted their own team. That may not make much sense to us looking back, but that's what they wanted. So it was, it was almost, so, so, I'm sorry, it was almost sort of like a, 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 a uh, a perceived uh, double dipping or dual revenue stream versus just just getting ownership. Exactly, got it. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's greedy. Exactly, and and, and it, yeah, it's, it's, some of it's greed, absolutely. And some of it um, is the concept uh, of creating uh, a built-in rivalry. So in baseball in New York City, there was a built-in rivalry, um, and so they thought this same built-in rivalry would work in New York City. Uh, and um, the NHL thought, hey, this will work. Now, what the NHL didn't realize was what you and I would just you just mentioned, is that they are still a, a fresh league. They're still a pretty young league, and they don't have they don't have that history to draw on, and they, and they don't have the resources either that baseball did. And so um, it was going to be a strain, and it turned out to be that. Um, but uh, while it was while they so what happens is is the the Rangers become the the team that New York City falls in love with and the the Americans sort of become second class citizens. They become the also ran team now. They go from being lovable losers to being just losers uh, in 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 the eyes of a lot of people in New York City. Um, and um, they they just they sort of start they start a slow, steady slide. Uh, out of the public, uh, uh, the public gaze, and uh, that gaze shifts more to the New York Rangers in every season. Can you give some insight into sort of that first season when there were two teams, the Rangers, the newly uh, christened or created Rangers, and the second year of the Americans? I mean, 
Um, the the next season, right? uh, The the Americans finish fourth in this oddly constructed Canadian division, where they're the only non-Canadian team. So that's a bone of contention immediately for the Americans. The idea of this Canadian division, and Dwyer thinks maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, but he thinks almost instantly that the fix is in, and that one of the one of the ways that the NHL is out to get him is that they they plump the the uh, Americans. In a Canadian division, and by do, and that uh, Boston um, and the newly minted New York Rangers have gotten together to try to push him away, so that uh, they can get more of the American audience for themselves, and um, and try to sort of again kind of hurt the New York Americans a little bit, because now the Americans have to travel more, they have to spend more money. And the players are going to be fatigued more as a result. And so Dwyer is putting all this together. And uh, uh, is it a conspiratorial thinking? Maybe. Um, but uh, he might have some, maybe he has some merit when he's thinking that. Um, also, the, the New York Rangers, they hit the ice with a really solidly constructed team. And that helps them a lot. In a way, their team is probably a better team their first year than what the Americans had their first year. And in some ways that's a lot to do with Con Smythe. Uh, Leafs fans, of course, know Con Smythe is the man. I mean, he's the guy who, who created the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, for, for lack of a better way of describing it. But he does, he, he starts out as the general manager of the New York Rangers and he spends that summer leading into the first season putting the New York Rangers together. And only at the 11th hour is he fired by tax record and uh, the ownership group because they want a, uh, a name to, uh, to be there. They want somebody with name recognition. And Con Smythe, it's hard to believe that is now, but there was a time when Con Smythe really didn't really wasn't a recognizable name. He was just a guy who'd had some success with Toronto varsities and, um, and, and really was, was not uh, a known hockey man. But um, so they went with um, Lester Patrick from the Pacific league and uh, they sent Smythe talking back to Toronto. So Smythe goes back to Toronto kind of sulking a little bit on uh, Patrick, uh, Lester Patrick finishes building the New York Rangers. Interesting story though. His his wife says, "Con, you're going back to New York, and you're getting the rest of the money that you're owed." So he goes back to New York on opening night for the Rangers and gets the rest of his money. On his way back to Toronto, he bets it on a horse race, doubles his money. Then when he gets to Toronto, he uh, bets on a hockey game, doubles it again. So now he's sitting on a whole lot of money, and he's approached by uh, J.P. Bickle, who says, uh, "Con, the, Tr- the Toronto St. Pat's." are in trouble and um, a group in Philadelphia wants to buy them and move them. But if you chip in with me, I think we can keep them here. Khan says, I'll do more than that. I'll, I'll become part of the entire ownership group. He does that and they save the St. Pat's and they become a Toronto Maple Leafs. So Khan Smythe isn't fired by the uh, New York Rangers. Toronto Maple Leafs might be the Philadelphia whatever instead. All right, all right, calm down. We'll be back to our conversation in just a minute. Uh, but uh, I do want to uh, pay some bills around here, you know? And um, look, we're uh, we're guilty as uh, as anyone, probably more so than anybody, of uh, 
of living in the past, right? Uh, you know, the show is about nostalgia and looking back and trying to remember and unearth uh, things about teams and leagues that uh, have come and gone, shall we say. And, uh, you know, it, that's uh, it's good. It's good to learn from history and, and remember some of those things. But look, you can't live in the past, right? You got to keep moving forward. Life goes on. And uh, look, at all the sports and teams and uh, leagues that we follow, uh, you know, there's uh, just so much excitement out there. We've got a fantasy team or two or 10. Uh, you got sports talk out, the, out there. You, you know, we were talking about modern day sports uh, as it uh, got built up on the, uh, the shoulders of history in this little podcast. And uh, my guess is that uh, more than a fair share of you listeners out there uh, want to find a decent place to uh, to place a little wager or two once in a while, especially when you have an inkling, you got a special feeling, uh, you think you know what's going to happen. Uh, why not make some bucks on that uh, on that little hunch? And, and well, we're here to help you, right? My Bookie is the place to go. It's our brand new sponsor, and we appreciate their uh, their patronage of our little show. MyBookie.ag. Uh, that's probably the best place that I know of. Uh, to uh, get going and do some uh, do some online wagering, and you know, look, you've uh, you've been living under a rock. You recognize that uh, the courts have uh, have changed uh, over the last uh, couple of months, and the uh, the mores around uh, around gambling seems to be loosening uh, when it comes to sports gambling. And my bookie is the place to go, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Mybookie.ag uh, to uh, get set up and uh, get some uh, get some good wagers, and uh, they're good at payouts. They're good at uh, all of that. Uh, service that uh, you uh, you expect. I uh, highly recommend them. I've heard uh, nothing but good things about them. You'll see all the online reviews are uh, top-notch as well. And look, we also have you covered too. When you give them a try, use the promo code SEATS and uh, they're going to match your initial deposit dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. So if you're looking for uh, some extra scratch to put uh, against some of your hunches and you want to get some, uh, some online uh, sports uh, bets out there. My bookie. It's the place to go. I highly recommend it. Uh, and it's mybookie.ag. Make sure you use the promo code, of course, seats. Seats uh, is the promo code. And you're going to get that dollar for dollar match uh, of your initial deposit all the way up to a thousand bucks. And uh, why not use that extra coinage, shall we say, uh, to uh, hopefully win a couple of uh, of good, solid bets uh, on your uh, your first go around with my bookie, mybookie.ag. We thank them for their uh, sponsorship of our show. And now back to our conversation. How do the Rangers become so good so quickly? And how much of this is uh, MSG maneuvering? Uh, how much of this is uh, conspiracy with the NHL? How much of this is just dumb luck? What do you think? No, there's there's no dumb luck involved. They become so good so quickly because of Lester Patrick. The Americans are a haphazard team. They're a good time team. And uh, they're run that way. The New York Rangers are a tight ship and they're run like and they're run almost like with like military precision and they're and they're run that way because of Lester Patrick. <clears throat> and so the Rangers go after top talent and Lester Patrick is a no nonsense guy and losing is not acceptable and fooling around is not acceptable and that's the approach he takes. The approach he took out West and the approach he takes with the Rangers and there's there's um, it's no fluke that they win their Stanley, Stanley Cup in their second season under Lester Patrick. Yeah, very interesting. Year two, New York Rangers. 
Stanley Cup champion. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. All right, so uh, clearly by the end of the decade, though, right, it's uh, the uh, the gap between these two teams uh, is widening. pretty significant, yeah. right? And yeah. um, the Amherst aren't done, though, right? Uh, they they do make uh, circa no. 1930 no. a big-time trade and arguably yeah. a, a, a major figure in the uh, in the franchise going forward and a guy named Red Dutton. Who's he? Yeah. It's, it's a big trade for a lot of reasons. Um, well, I should say for two big reasons. Uh, one, Red Dutton arrives, and two, Lionel Conacher leaves. Um, so Lionel Conacher um, is um, um, sort of, um, uh, well, is, is, I would say arguably the, the best Canadian athlete of the 20th century. Um, he could do it all, and he pretty much did do it all. Uh, in high school, he was the wrestling championship uh, for the province of Ontario in 1920. Uh, the following year, uh, boxed, I think it was four or five rounds against Jack Dempsey. Uh, and then that same year, he won the, the Great Cup uh, championship um, when he helped lead the Toronto Argos to victory. Um, so the Great Cup is sort of like the, is, is the Canadian professional football championship. Um, he was an excellent lacrosse player. In fact, he was a better, considered a better lacrosse player than he was a hockey player. Um, and uh, it wasn't, he didn't even take up hockey until he was, I think, about 16 or so when he started skating. And he didn't even want to play professional hockey. He had to sort of be convinced to, uh, to go to Pittsburgh to start playing professional hockey. So he was traded from Pittsburgh to the New York Americans. And that's how he ends up there. Um, but playing... Uh, under the New York Americans and Dwyer's team. I mean, it was Roy Waters who said, join the Americans and laugh yourself to death. And so uh, the, the, the Bill, Big Bill Dwyer uh, Americans was having a really adverse effect on uh, Conacher. And by the time this trade happened, uh, at the start of the 1930-31 season, Conacher was essentially a functioning alcoholic. And it was, so it was killing him and it was killing his career. So when he got traded for Montreal Maroons, he basically stops drinking as soon as he gets to Montreal, saves his life, turns his career around, and uh, he goes on to have a, stand, uh, a Hall of Fame career, and uh, he wins two Stanley Cups. He wins one in Montreal, and then he wins another one eventually in Chicago. So that's what happens with, with uh, Conacher. So for Dutton, the trade means coming from Montreal, um, where he could have been a leader, um, but he also now he did win a Stanley Cup in Montreal, and then he goes to New York, where he eventually does become a leader for the team, and becomes sort of the guy who sort of again this tragic figure with the team. Now he doesn't become a leader immediately. Um, Dutton has a reputation that followed him through hockey as probably being a hothead uh, and a bit of a prankster and having a knack for mischief. And, and this knack for mischief actually cost the Americans uh, a shot at the playoffs uh, that season, actually. Um, and um, that spring, they were um, uh, the Americans had finally pulled ahead of Montreal Maroons. Uh, the Maroons and the Americans had this rivalry. Again, they're in a Canadian division, right? We talked about how uh, the, the fix was in and they ended up in the, in the uh, Canadian division. So the Montreal Maroons were their nemesis. And Dwyer had a real hate on for the Montreal Maroons. And so finally, the, 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 the Amherst had caught and passed the Maroons. 
And Dwyer, who, you know, <laughs> not the smartest guy sometimes, he celebrated a little bit early. He decided to throw a big party for his players. And uh, he had a horse racing ranch out in New Jersey, and he told his boys to, to gather up the players, his boys being the guys who would have like, the, you know, sidearms and stuff, right, and bodyguards and gangsters, and say, okay, gather up the players and uh, fill a couple of limousines up with the good stuff and uh, send them out there for a big party. And um, so, as you might guess, hockey players and, and booze, not always a good idea. Hockey players, booze, and horses, even worse idea. And so as the booze was flowing and the hockey players were feeling no pain, uh, Red Dutton started bragging about um, how, uh, how talented he was as a, as a horseman and how he could race horses better than anybody else on the team. And so before long, this turned into a bit of a challenge thing, and, and the players started racing each other on horseback. The first couple of times, it, it went uh, without a hitch. So uh, George Patterson uh, had his turn. And uh, as they rounded the, the first turn, the horse went left, and Patterson went right, and he fell down and, uh, and uh, broke his collarbone. And uh, as he shattered his collarbone, uh, uh, he also shattered the playoff hopes for the team because George was uh, the leading, one of the leading scorers and, and sort of one of the de facto leaders of the team that year. So thanks to Red Dutton he, and his horsing around, uh, he kind of screwed the Americans that season out of the playoff shot. It also seems to be sort of a harbinger of, of, of the team's sort of uh, luck, if you will, over the years. Well, all right, let, let's so let's let's yeah. move a little forward. So a couple of things happened in the in the early '30s, right? So the team is obviously not uh, performing all that well. I think there was uh, by the time '35, '36 season rolls around, um, I think there was like the fifth consecutive year they hadn't made the playoffs, and again. That's some feat when you're talking about a league that barely had not even 10 teams, right? So You have to be really bad to go on a stretch like that. But also, though, interesting, right? A little thing called prohibition comes to an end, is repealed in December of 33, and that's got to start to hit the pocketbook, literally, of of Mr. Dwyer, who arguably his living has sort of been, uh, not completely, but certainly revolving around uh, his sort of control of... Uh, of the alcohol sort of a flow, shall we say, in the on the eastern seaboard. Um, maybe Absolutely. Give, give a state of the emirs at that point in time. Sure. So that happened, and he got hit with a double whammy. Not only did prohibition come to an end, but the IRS is starting to chase him for tax evasion. And so he's on the run from, from the IRS, and he's running out of money. And eventually the IRS does catch up to him. And so now he's really in hot water. And so he's running out of money, and he can't spend as freely as he used to. And um, the writing was on the wall for Bill Dwyer and, and, the, and the New York Americans. And so by the mid-1930s, um, his ownership stake, his ownership of the team, let's say, is sort of in question, and his ability to, to hold on to the team is called into question by the NHL. And um, they essentially take the team away from him. Um, and you no, know, it's not with not, that doesn't happen all at once. It sort of happens gradually to Bill. Um, and he, he makes sort of a couple of Hail Mary attempts to hold on to the team. He, um, he tries to move it. Uh, he tries to move it. He tries to sell it to an ownership group. Uh, and in fact, it's the same ownership group, but 
made a failed attempt to move the Ottawa Senators to St. Louis um, that, and, and that sort of thing. And then he tries to move it as well, and that didn't work out. Um, and and um, so, but eventually the NHL has no choice but to, to yank the team away from him. And they take, they sort of uh, assume ownership, um, sort of like a Phoenix Coyotes kind of situation, I guess, um, to put it in modern terms. And uh, they sort of assume ownership of the team. And uh, Red Dutton is sort of put in place as the president and GM of the club. And um, he also has been assuming the role of a player coach as well. So, so Red Dutton ends up taking over everything. And for Red Dutton, this has been a gradual uh, assuming of powers as well. Red's also tried to keep the team afloat. He's he's loaned uh, Big Bill money over the years to try and keep the team afloat, only to see Bill though He dealt in booze. He didn't drink, but he did like to gamble, um, and he wasn't very good at it. Um, so when uh, Red Dutton would lend him money, Bill would try to double that money to try and make more money for the team, and ultimately he would lose it along the way. So it, it just didn't work out for Big Bill Dwyer in the end, and uh, so Red Dutton ended up basically running the show. It seems like uh, Dutton was able to kind of make things work with uh, with uh, tape and wire, though, his first couple of years uh, 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 sort of running the show, both as a coach and maybe later as a general manager operating head. Because in, in 37, 38, they actually made the playoffs for the third time ever. Um, well, yeah, not, not only make the playoffs, but they beat the Rangers. And uh, one of what was at that time the longest um, playoff game in history of the NHL. Um, and... Um, and then um, they went on and they had a heartbreaking loss to the Chicago Blackhawks after that. But um, they, they stunned the New York Rangers because they weren't supposed to win. And they the, the Rangers were shocked when that happened. But it also seems that uh, after sort of getting that sort of uh, stabilization, I guess, and maybe a bit more of a, a spark to the team and, and some, uh, some real sort of verve finally, um, in comes the war, right, which decimates – the rosters and, and certainly, you know, the, the economic uh, appeal uh, for fans and all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's a multi, it's a hydra headed uh, issue and far bigger than just, you know, you know, plenty old pro sport. Yeah. But other teams are in a better situation to survive and the Americans just aren't um, They're They've already been dealt a few blows along the way and they're just starting to sort of, sort of get back on their feet a little bit. But whereas other teams were in a situation where they, they could survive and uh, they weren't sort of in that struggling situation. And so when the war comes along and all of a sudden uh, Canadian players um, are joining up or being drafted or aren't being allowed to travel to the U.S. to play uh, because there are limitations and, and, and travel restrictions, um, it, really, it really hurts Dutton and his American, uh, I think, worse than it hurts Boston and Detroit and Chicago. So um, he feels the pinch, I think, worse than the other teams. So uh, during this time, and we're going to get sort of to maybe to the exclamation point, which is the final season, ultimately, when yeah. when they, at least in name, uh, uh, changed their name and their, their appellation to Brooklyn. But was there any effort before that to extricate themselves from the Madison Square Garden lease arrangement? No. 
any why there wasn't any suitable place along the lines of an MSG at that time. No, they there was they they there wasn't any thinking along that lines yet. Um, and um, the, again, moving to Brooklyn was a hail mary. Um, and then so Dutton sort of it was a hail mary by Dutton. And there was again there was there was no suitable arena. Um, Dwyer had already made that that attempt. He 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 made that Hail Mary pass and it had failed. And so with Dutton, the idea was to stabilize it and try to keep things going. And then when he realized that, that he couldn't keep things alive at Madison Square Garden any longer, then he decided, okay, I'm going to make a move. And then that, that's how we get to that last season. And, and he'd started to have that thought a little bit before then. But it was in that last season that he made that final, that he made that decision to move. And, and again, and I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself now, a bit in the storytelling, but um, when he makes that move, it's a name only, really, because there's no suitable arena to for them to play games in Brooklyn yet. Um, there's a, there's a, a small arena there for them to, uh, there's the Brooklyn Ice Palace for them to um, practice at, but that, that's not a suitable arena for them to play games in. They can only hold practices. So he's encouraging the players to, to live in Brooklyn, to be part of the community, and even that doesn't happen all at once. They sort of ease into that, and then they practice. They hold their practices there, and these practices are open to the public, so the kids are going down and they're becoming Brooklyn Americans fans, but they play all their games in Madison Square Garden still. Yeah, that's interesting, right? So they, they basically are the Brooklyn Americans in, I guess, domicile only, right? But but actually they need to schlep across the river uh, yeah. to, to play yeah. their game still. Is there any real yeah. path, though, or plan to get an arena? Or was it was it hope that and, and, somebody would just step up? And no, maybe... and there is a plan. And and, and and Dutton had a plan. And and he even had land picked up. And he he believed that if he, if he could just get the arena built, that it would work. In fact, one of the sites, there's some irony here, and one of the sites that he wanted to build an arena is where um, uh, the Barclays Center is now, which is where the New York Islanders, well, at least now, are playing. But um, So that's one of the sites that he wanted to build at. Um, but again, you know, it's the war. By this point, the war is on, and the Americans, uh, the United States is entering the war. There's a shortage on steel, a shortage on all sorts of other materials. And, uh, you know, you're not going to build a hockey arena during the Second World War. It's just not going to happen. And, um, uh, and, and, and and Dutton's got the money. He can bankroll it. Um, plus, I mean, he's, 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 not, um, he's not a small-time guy himself. He's got his own construction money behind him. Um, so he can help get this done, but, um, there's just not the material and there's not the time he's running. He's just, the fates are conspiring against him. Is there any discussion or any thought that, uh, maybe the, um, Branch Rickey and the, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, or sorry, Walter O'Malley and the Brooklyn Dodgers could be a potential partner given, uh, you know, their prowess in the, in the, in the borough? Yeah, no, that never, that never came to be. It's too bad. It would have been a great. You would think that uh, that sort of thing could have happened, right? But, yeah. All right. Well, so so the the Amherst, uh, uh decide to, or maybe you're forced to suspend operations during uh, as the war sort of rolls on, and then circa '45, it seems like uh, Dutton has this notion 
that the team's going to come back again and almost, uh, I guess, had full intentions to literally revive it and bring it back. And I think even, if I'm not mistaken, there actually was uh, a group that either he found or, or stepped up that might uh, be willing or have been willing to uh, actually build an arena in Brooklyn. But despite that, whether it's real or not, um, maybe you can describe perhaps sort of the denouement here, uh, which seems murky to me because it doesn't seem clear as to why uh, Dutton was unable or couldn't uh, rehabilitate or bring back this team now that the war was over and the NHL was looking towards the future. So, sure. So, at the end of that that fateful season, um, he they they suspend the team and they disperse the players. And Dutton agrees to this. He agrees to suspend the team and the, and, and disperse the players. And what happens is um, also it's important to note that during the 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 war that um, the the original president of the league dies. Um, so Frank Holder dies, and Dutton takes over as president of the league, um, with the understanding that he'll serve just long enough for him to find a replacement. He ends up serving for the remainder of the war. First time, by the way, that the NHL ever turns a profit is under Red Dutton's leadership. But um, so the war comes to an end. He hands over the reins and um, and he says, great, I'm ready. I'm going to take back the Brooklyn Americans and we're going to start up again. And uh, I've got everything already. We're going to build an arena. We're ready to go. And here's where it gets, I used to say, a little murky. So it's hard to know if it was the Rangers uh, who blocked it, if it was um, – uh, if it was the Boston Bruins that blocked it, if it was both of them, but um, it's blocked and it's a no, I'm sorry, you can't have the Brooklyn Americans. And it's Con Smythe who delivers the news with probably just a little too much glee. And he says to him, no, you, you can't have, uh, you can't have uh, your team back. And um, now some people say that he said this immediately after that news. Some people say some some records indicate that he that he did this after he was offered the opportunity to put a franchise in Buffalo, which he instantly said a franchise in Buffalo will never be successful. Um, but he said you can take your franchise and you can shove it up your ass, and that those that those are his exact words. You can take your franchise and shove it up your ass. And then he walked out and he said, as long as I'm alive, the New York Rangers will never win the Stanley Cup. Which puts more heat and more puts more credence on the idea that uh, he did blame the New York Rangers for him never getting his team back. So that was that was I guess in New York Ranger hockey lore referred to. Is that Dutton's curse? Was that what it's called? Yeah, Dutton's curse. Until uh, until the Rangers and they, never, and, they and they and they didn't they never did win the Stanley Cup as long as he was alive. They didn't win it until ninety was ninety four. They won under. Uh, uh, with Messier as captain, and uh, some Rangers fans, some Rangers fans, going to take me to task for not knowing that. But uh. so, <laughs> so okay. I mean, what what? Uh, so I guess we kind of uh, skated over this a little bit. I mean, Dutton essentially was kind of steering the NHL ship through the end of the war, right? And some recompense, right, to be slapped in the face, if you will, by being denied. Uh, yeah. To get back to his team, I mean, I I, I guess I would probably have reacted similarly maybe even more uh with even some saltier language but 
Why? I, I mean, yeah, is, do you yeah, think... Yeah, he's got a bit of a temper. Sutton always had a bit of a temper, so um, I'm surprised those are the only words she would have used. <laughs> Well, it just it just seems that it, the, the the league and the the board of governors kind of bent over backwards to kind of keep him engaged, to kind of steer this ship through the uh, the, the challenging uh, years of the war. And I, you'd think, at the very least, in terms of uh, showing some some sort of appreciation, uh, but you you kind of wonder, you know, if it was MSG, if it was the Boston team, if it was some kind of he rubbed some the wrong way, or or perhaps uh, perhaps they felt that he had. Uh, uh, expended his uh, his energies to uh, the extent that they needed him to do so, and maybe there was some forethought into maybe what the league needed to do in a post-war era, or I don't know. It just seems kind of curious that they would reward, quote-unquote, well, somebody like that with uh, and, slap in the face. And you have to think, too, Boston and New York had it pretty had it pretty cozy. They had all of the eastern, northeastern United States all to themselves. Why would they want a third hockey team in there? They had they had all of northeastern U.S. divided between the two of them. So why 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 divide it up with another team? Why right. share it? So as we let let's round this up then. So but the so let, looking back, the NHL actually records the Amherst as actually having quote unquote retired from the league in 1942, right? Yeah. Which obviously, you know, arguably probably needs an asterisk right next to it in the in the history books. But what becomes? I, I would I would argue that yeah. Yeah. So what would so what so then what is left right? So in essence, they were the number seven team in this league, and in That's essence, right. with its uh, with its ending, uh, the NHL essentially becomes six, and this is where this sort of mythology of the original six gets uh, gets forged. Correct? That's right. Yeah. Why do you think? Uh, so let's let's expand then into that. Why then, after having uh, nipped. Uh, the Americans from uh, the roster. Why do you think it took so long for the NHL to then further expand uh, from six teams all the way until 1967? It seems like a really long time. Well, you know, that's a good question. And that's a question that I've wrestled with. And I know others have as well. There's been a lot of books written about it. So I don't know that my answer will be a definitive answer for sure. But um, it was the era between then and, and, the end of the 67, 68 season, it's sort of not only called the original six, but it's also considered the golden era of the NHL. And uh, some of that, I think, is because the baby boomers should look back on it with rose-colored uh, glasses and see the technicolor photos and, and uh, you know, the televised footage and that sort of thing. But um, I, I think in, there was always hints of wanting to make the, team, the league larger, but owners were quite happy to have their own little fiefdoms. And um, the idea was that if there were more teams, then there were more opportunities for players to play elsewhere, and then there was less opportunities to control. Um, when the teams, when there was the final decision to expand, Hans Smythe, who uh, by then had basically walked away from the Leafs, he'd had enough of the shenanigans of Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe, and said, you know, you guys are, basically said, you guys are screwing up the Leafs and Maple Leaf Gardens and the legacy I've left, so I'm out of here. But uh, his, he left a parting shot for the NHL, and he said, when it comes to expansion, uh, be careful what you wish for. And uh, and people kind of like, ah, oh, you're just being a kook. 
But when you look at expansion and you look at the teams that came in, um, it was a mixed bag and it didn't always work out well for the NHL. Um, and um, so, you know, that maybe that there's a reason maybe we should be thankful that they didn't expand as quick, very quickly. Um, but uh, I don't know if I answered that question very well or not, but um, that's sort of my thoughts on it. And I think it's also interesting, too, one last sort of note on Dutton, right? He he literally walked away from the game. I think it was something on the order of like 34 years before he even yeah. made a public It, it wasn't until they had an anniversary of, of the Calgary team that he played on uh, when the Calgary Flames had an anniversary night to recognize that. And they invited him to, have, to drop the puck. Um, and it was also coincided with, with the opening of something. The Flames had him out for that. That was the first time that he that he stepped back into an NHL arena. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember too that Dutton uh, uh, still, despite the um, the animosity that lingered uh, post this uh, situation in forty five forty six, uh, was inducted in the uh, the Hockey Hall of Fame up in Toronto in nineteen fifty eight, and you know was part yep. of the Hall of Fame selection committee for fifteen years, and you know he was still nominally or, or at least sort of at an emeritus level sort of involved or related to the NHL. Yeah. And, and, and funny enough, his construction company, West, built hockey arenas as well um, for amateur hockey and that sort of thing. And, and he did a great, you know, and, and he was always involved at the grassroots level, but he wanted nothing to do with NHL hockey rinks and being in there and being a part of those games. He, it, it soured him. And the man held a grudge. <laughs> There's just no denying it. And, um, you know, he he'd given his heart and soul to the New York Americans in trying to save that team, and uh, the NHL screwed him. And so he basically said, "Screw you guys, I'm out of here." All right, two last questions, uh, and thank you so much yeah. for uh, for your uh, the, the the this is fascinating because to me, you know, to, to know, you know, if you're a Rangers fan in, in the NHL today, right? To to to, I think it's uh, important to at least know and remember that there was uh, a team that literally. Uh, and maybe even directly preceded uh, your franchise, uh, and frankly, yeah. very related to even today's ownership with today's modern modern day Madison Square Garden owns the Rangers, so that that connection is still very very tight. But let me ask you these last two yeah. questions. Number one, sure. uh, is there anything behind uh, sort of any story or anecdote about the nickname uh, the Amerks? Uh, I'm, I'm not even pronouncing that correctly, but I know it's obviously an abbreviation. But uh, any knowledge or thought or understanding about maybe why that name became kind of so synonymous? As a nickname? I only know it as the abbreviation. I wish I had a better story for you, but I only have ever knew it as the abbreviation of the Americans. And uh, I don't know anything else. Yeah, I wish I had a better story for you. All right, well, we'll put it out there. We'll put it out there to our audience because uh, you'd be surprised as to who knows what and and follows this kind of stuff. And we kind of, we find ourselves in very dusty, musty And and I dug, too. I did a lot of digging on it and nothing came up. And I I asked people in interviews and and I didn't find anybody who, who could tell me, so... And not even to my last question, uh, the one, the only Larry King. You think you know everything about Brooklyn, right? Uh, how did you find Larry, and uh, how did he uh, become convinced to, or how did you convince him uh, to be the narration for this film? So Larry King. So early on, Stephen M. Cohen, the executive producer, his wife is also an executive producer on the film, and so we would have conference. They, they live in Brooklyn. And so, and I live up here in Ontario. And so we would have conference calls 
to discuss the film. And so early on in the film, we're talking on a conference call and we're saying, you know, it'd be great to have a Brooklyn voice to tell this story. And I, I'm saying, yeah, that would be great. And we, you know, we've established a budget and it's a modest budget. And, uh, and then they say, yeah, it'd be great. And, um, and Stephen Cohen says, uh, yeah, it'd be great if Larry could do it. And uh, his wife says, yeah, Larry would be great. And you have to keep in mind that when I do these films, everybody's got a buddy or a friend who wants to be in a film or has a great voice for this or can do this narration for you or can play the piano. Everybody's got a buddy or a friend. And so I kind of sighed heavily and said, oh, so Larry, okay. So um, does Larry have an experience? And there's this pause. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's got a little bit of experience. I said, oh, okay. Uh, so Larry, who's Larry? And uh, Stephen says, um, Larry King. And I thought they were joking. So I said, oh, great. You get Larry King to do, do narration. I'll get my buddy uh, Bobby De Niro to do some of the voiceover work. And crickets on the other end. They didn't appreciate my joke. Um, turns out they weren't joking. They were serious. And uh, he says, very Stephen says in a very strong voice, uh, no, Larry's a family friend. He's friends with my father since childhood. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, so long story short, um, Larry King is uh, friends with Stephen Cohen's dad, and they've been friends since they were kids. They grew up in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. And uh, Larry King was a Brooklyn was a Brooklyn Americans fan. He watched the Brooklyn Americans as a kid uh, during that one season. And so that's how he came on board. And um, that's how we got Larry King. All right, all you uh, New York Rangers know-it-alls fans out there uh, in the metro area, you blue shirts in Section 400 up in the MSG uh, balcony and the rafters. Uh, make sure that you do recognize, pay some homage to uh, the uh, the remembrances, the history of the team that preceded you uh, in Madison Square Garden, the third version of the MSG, uh, and that is the New York slash Brooklyn Americans, and that is uh, a wealth of information from Dale, who we thank tremendously uh, for uh, walking us through that story, uh, a bit of that history. Uh, I'm sure there's some other other uh, tangents to that story that uh, are well worth uh, digging into further. Uh, and I cannot highly recommend enough uh, the film. It is called Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans. It is narrated by uh, the one, the only Larry King. It is available just about wherever you can find fine films. You can find it, uh, as uh, Dale mentioned, uh, on iTunes. It is available on Amazon, both in DVD form uh, or as a, a prime video uh, stream. It's uh, available on demand on various platforms. Uh, I think it'd be really cool to have a few more screenings. Maybe we can help uh, sort of get some of those uh, maybe underway at a theater near you. You can uh, have a very convenient link uh, to uh, the movie from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. I think it's going to be episode 79 uh, with Dale Morrissey. Uh, and uh, you will find a couple of links to various forms uh, of this movie. Again, Only the Dead Know the Brooklyn Americans. It came out, uh, I think, in 2017 last year. Yep, indeed. 
And uh, Dale Morrissey is the uh, the writer, the director, the producer. Larry King is the narrator. And it's uh, it's it's chock full of fun stuff. Stan, Stan Fischler is in there. It's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. Uh, fascinating story. If you grew up in New York or uh, are a longtime hockey fan in and around the New York area, or frankly, just an NHL fan and want to know what the hell was going on with this league before the quote unquote original six, you owe it to yourself. Uh, and, and frankly, even just for the color uh, vivid imagery of those uh, those sweaters, which are arguably uh, some of the best, if not the best in NHL history uh, in terms of design and logo uh, creation and color scheme and all that stuff. It is uh, it's a it's a very, very interesting story, a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know about and uh, interesting all around the Brooklyn slash New York Americans. Before we run, I want to say thank you tremendously to our friend Jerry Payne and Podfly Productions. Uh, make sure that you check out Podfly at podfly.net. You want to get some help, some assistance, some production work and guidance in uh, any of your podcasting uh, journeys, by all means, give them a try. Tell them that we here at Good Seats Still Available sent you podfly.net. Okay, uh, that is it. I think we've wrapped it up. Terrific. Dale, thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week with uh, some more fun-filled uh, journeys into the world of forgotten sports. Until then, I bid you all a fond adieu. Good night and good luck. Good luck.